The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to the Carol Markowitz Show on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Podcast Network on iHeartRadio. I think after the last few days, we need a palate cleanser. So let's talk about sex. People aren't having it. Study after study shows a downward trend in the number of people having sex. One study in 2021 showed 26% of adult Americans hadn't had sex in the last year. A large study from 2000 to 2018 showed an increasing number of people, 18 to 34, reported having no sex or far less frequent sex than in years prior. Nearly 40% of young adults surveyed in California in 2021 had no sexual partners in the prior year at all. I know California is weird, but still. I feel like in the 1980s and maybe 90s, sex was very much in, and now it feels out. All of the comedies of that age put sex front and center, for example. I'm not saying bring back the gratuitous nudity of the movies of the 1980s, but it's almost like sex has become passe. I'm going to talk about our declining birth rates in later episodes, but that's not what I mean here. I literally mean people are not having sex, and this is having a serious negative impact on our society. In November of 2021, I wrote a piece for The Spectator magazine called Life After Sex. The pandemic was obviously pretty unsexy. I wrote, quote, life could not have been less sexy lately. 
The neighborhood busybody calling the police on your backyard party, half of everyone's face covered by a mask, everyone drinking too much, staying in their pajamas all day and putting on the quarantine 15, end quote. But it wasn't just that. We've been going through some pretty significant societal changes. I wrote, quote, social changes are also ratcheting down the sexy. 57 genders only sounds cool to a teenager. An adult hearing someone as a pan, bi, trans, non-binary femme will just tune out and go search up Pornhub for something that makes sense. Porn use, of course, is way up. People might not want to have actual sex, but they're not giving up their porn. It's a new world. Click, click, relief. Far easier than making it work in the new normal, whatever that is this month. Sexy is so old-fashioned, end quote. There's really something to that. We used to accept, without too much introspection, what we found generally attractive. For men, yes, the Victoria's Secret model type was what the majority of men would turn to look at in the street. It doesn't mean men aren't attracted to the 99.9% of us who don't look like these models, but it was just acceptable to say these women are beautiful and most men will find them attractive. It was obvious. It was right around the time of that spectator piece that Victoria's Secret decided to change their whole guiding philosophy around this. They announced, and I wrote, that they'll be phasing out their impossibly gorgeous and fit angels. Instead, they'll be going with leading icons and change makers, including the soccer star, Megan Rapinoe, the transgender model, Valentina Sempeo, the plus-size model, Paloma Alcesser, and 17-year-old skier, Eileen Gu. These new icons won't be posing in lingerie, but sharing their inspirational stories in a 10-episode podcast, So Hot, end quote. Women don't put on lingerie to be inspired, and men don't look at women in lingerie to see a change maker. Lingerie is made for sex. That obvious statement is no longer obvious. People can be attracted to whatever they want, and there's a wide range of what people like, but I really oppose the whole what you're supposed to like idea for both men and women. When the show Mad Men was all the rage, women loved Don Draper. He was handsome, he was a man's man, but also, you know, kind of a Lothario who was bad to his women. So there were all these hand-wringing think pieces from self-described feminists about how they were attracted to him, like Teehee, but, you know, felt so bad about it. By the way, no man in history has ever felt bad about who he was attracted to. Never. Ever. I was not attracted to Don Draper. He seemed like too much of a project to me. In fact, my celebrity crush is Daron from Fauda, kind of a, a hot moment for that right now. But he's like the protector guy and he's a badass. And like my husband, he's Israeli. Um, that sulking Don Draper guy really did nothing for me. And I also didn't feel like there was anyone that I was supposed to like or not supposed to like. And so it lets me like who I like. But so now it feels like men are getting that same pressure about what they're supposed to like. And that helps explain why sex is on the decline. We like what we like and being made to feel bad about that really doesn't work. We're not going to find some do-good or attractive just because we're supposed to. I say that women have always gotten the advice to not be attracted to what they're actually attracted to. 
I think when we see women not consider attraction in the guy that they're marrying, that's a problem. And it's one of the reasons we see mismatched libidos in marriages. You should marry a man who is good to you, who is a good provider, who will take care of his family. Yes, yes to all of that. But he should also be a man you want to have sex with. And a marriage without sex is a friendship. I sometimes talk about how sex is the most important part of a marriage, and it actually makes people annoyed because they say, no, so many other things matter, you know, trust matters or compatibility matters. And of course, all of that matters. When I say most important thing in a relationship, I don't say only important thing in a relationship. A lot of other things matter, but sex is really front and center. Otherwise, what you have is a friendship. One of the wild things I discovered during that, during, while I was writing that spectator piece is that there was a study conducted during the pandemic that found that cohabiting couples actually masturbated more and had sex less during the lockdowns. I mean, that's crazy, but I'll side note this by bringing it back to my first episode where my monologue was in favor of marriage, that married people have more sex than anyone. I bring this message to college kids all the time. It's a lie that marriage is the end of a sex life. In a lot of cases, it's very much the beginning. So what's the point? Sex is good? Yeah, that's the point. Sex is good. One of my favorite things to hit is that we have to point things out, even if it's just to ourselves. Treat sex as important. It's useful, look, for better sleep and better health, lower stress, and it's just a good time. So, you know, go do it right now or after the show is over. Coming up next, an interview with Mary Catherine Ham. Join us after the break. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would say that when I was thinking about guests that I would have in the future, when I thought about interviewing MK, it was one of those where I thought, is 20 to 30 minutes going to be enough because I have a lot of things I want to cover with her, uh, but we'll do our best to get to everything. And it's so nice to have you, Mary Catherine. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So the overall theme of this show is going to be how to be happier, how to improve your life, but also how to do things like find the right relationship or how to make friends in adulthood. And I love everything you write. I'm legitimately like, I think you're such a beautiful writer. But one of my favorite things that you've written was back in 2017 on the Federalist website about trying to make mom friends. And it was called The Internal Monologue of a New Mom Making Mom yeah. Friends. So you, everybody should Google it. Uh, it was hilarious and brilliant. And so in thinking of this question, I also I confused that piece with the interaction, the time that your daughter peed on a potential friend. Separate story. <laughs> It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Accidentally, obviously. Yes. But, you know, so how's adult Look, potty training comes with uh, certain challenges? <laughs> There's pluses and minuses to all friendships. Um, so how is the adult friend making going? The grown up um, actually, friend making? Because I feel like adult friend making sounds like something different. <laughs> yes, yes. I did. I think in that piece, I suggested that there should be basically uh, Tinder for moms and i was like oh that's weird is that that'll get a lot of clicks but i'm not sure that's what i mean um so and i should say also just to to um exonerate my my poor daughter uh yes she was potty training i took her to a park and she said no mom i definitely don't need a diaper today i am good to go and i was like great that sounds awesome and when we got in the car uh she told me uh i peed at the park uh and that little girl yelled at me and I said, oh, well, I'm sure she was just surprised, you know, no biggie. Uh, and then it turns out that what happened was the girl was standing under her on the play structure when this happened. So <laughs> still fair, 
fair. I did not ever get time. <laughs> I did never uh, get in touch with that mom again. But anyway, uh, so that friendship was out. But uh, the adult friend making is pretty good. It's it's an interesting question because I think when you have kids, you wonder, do I need to make a completely different set of friends who also have kids and are dealing with the same yeah. phase of life that I'm in? Or can I import my old friends who are also moms now, which is kind of that's a lot of what I've done. I have several in right. the area who we were friends before we were moms, one in particular from college who we parent similarly, uh, which is a huge part of making those kinds of friends. And uh, so I do a little bit of that. I also am thankful that in several neighborhoods I've lived in, in the DC area, I have had uh, really good friends nearby who also mm -hmm. had similar values and similar parenting styles. Uh, on the corner I lived in before I moved here, uh, when I was a single mom, there were two SEC fan uh, houses nice. on either side of me. Mm -hmm. Granted, LSU and Auburn, but look, you deal <laughs> with what you deal with when you come to right. another place. Uh, and they had, you know, they understood me and the football and had rough and tumble kids. And uh, it, we went through a tough time together, obviously in my life. And uh, so I was able to make friends there and then I moved and I moved close to a, um, an army base. And now I, now I have my army mom oh, yeah. friends and they are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> Does being a public person hinder that or help it? The whole friend? Uh, I think it hinders it <laughs> more than anything <laughs> because mainly because I actually, I, one thing I do, uh, in an attempt to make mom friends or adult friends in, uh, in my vicinity is that I don't engage with their social media until after I've talked with them for a while. Like that's not the first place I want to go. Uh, right. much like your neighborhood listserv. I feel like the reason you're going there is more than like, you're just going to end up hating your neighbors and that's right. not what I'm interested in doing. Mm -hmm. So there are several friends I have whom if I had seen their social media first, I would have assumed a, they would dislike me and right. B that I might not like them. And it turns out that social media can just put a different tinge on things. Not everybody has a very, um, the same tone as yeah. I do. And, you know, it can just look very different for different people. And it can look very different from their real life persona. And right. so I want to get to know the real life person. And then we can delve into that later. With me, that sometimes becomes impossible if someone, you know, clocks me as a public mm -hmm. person first. But it hasn't, it hasn't caused a ton of problems. Right. So you've had a really amazing career. I've, you know, feel like I've been along for the ride uh, for a lot of it. And you were most recently at CNN. Uh, it was a splashy departure. Would you, would you say that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Can I you, felt like I needed to get some shots in. Can you tell our listeners what happened? Yes. So uh, I was at CNN from 2015 until this spring. Uh, before that, I was at Fox. I actually enjoyed very much being at CNN. I went over there with the intention of being the weirdo on the set, being mm -hmm. the person who says the thing that other people don't say. Now, at that time, I think this is in the very, this is in the earlier Zucker years. It's at, as Trump is headed toward the nomination, but we didn't know that at the time. And I felt like it was a pretty nice place to be and did responsible work and had Trump supporters and Trump critical commentators on mostly every panel I was on. And I enjoyed that very much. This uh, is like the nicest thing anybody's ever said about CNN, by the way. Well, that <laughs> was on the left, you know, <laughs> that was 2015 and 16. 
I do felt, I feel like it really took a turn and that this, um, if I may, am I allowed to say pissing match between sure. uh, Zucker and Trump led to really bad news coverage and really bad incentives because everyone knew that the more you try to nail Trump, the more airtime you're going to get. Right. And th- it was very obvious. And it was obvious to me that I wasn't doing the right things to get the airtime. Now, mm-hmm. that does not mean that certain journalists didn't put me on the air. Like, I was on Tapper's show a lot. There were people who made an effort to get me out there. John Berman is another one who was fun to be on with. Um, but in general, institutionally, I was not doing what needed to be done, right, in the eyes of management. So my career sort of like tailed off in that way. Then we hit COVID. Then in 2021 and 22, I'm off air for months and months and months and months. Mm-hmm. Now I had two babies in two years. So I'm like, am I so sad about that? I'm not so sad about it, but I am employed by this place and what's happening. So I started asking questions and I can't figure out what's happening. Like, why am I never on? I'm pitching columns. Nothing, nothing's working. And finally, after Chris Licht joins for his short, short tenure at CNN, I get a call from somebody in management or HR who explains to me what happened. And here's what happened is that I was put on the bench, suspended without my knowledge. Everyone told uh, Zucker told the shows not to use me because I had tweeted criticism of Jeffrey Tubin. who if remind remember, us who that is. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Tubin was a legal uh, commentator uh, who was in his capacity as a, at another job had been caught on a zoom um, pleasuring himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had not been fired from CNN as a result of this interaction. He was benched and then brought back somewhat triumphantly with a, like a, an interview by Alison Camerata. It was very strange. And he, I, I wondered to myself, how long was I punished for criticizing him versus how long he was punished? And the answer right. is he was off air for eight months and I was off air for seven months. Right. So that's the price for you didn't saying even get that. to show anybody anything, you know? No, I know. And I thought to myself, man, I really, I could have had only fans and a career and I just, you know, <laughs> and a political commentary career, but no, it's just so, it's so deeply unfair. Mm-hmm. Part of it was that the context of the conversation that I was having on Twitter was one where I was critical of media coverage, including CNN of the congressional baseball shooting that rubs people the wrong way, but I felt like it needed to be said. And mm-hmm. I should not have used that phrase that I just used, but <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that conversation included this tweet about Tubin, And apparently that was, that was a bridge too far guys. And right. so I wasn't ever fired or let go or mm-hmm. laid off. I was asked to come back. And I was asked to come back with a smile on my face and just move on. And I did not feel like I could do that. And so I wrote a piece about what actually happened. Right. So then I I left like six months later. Yeah. (laughs) So I think when people hear stories like this, they imagine there's like a lawsuit that follows some, something like this for like this kind of bad behavior from a company like that, that they benched you, you know, I mean, in the, era following me too the idea that they benched a female commentator for saying hey exposing yourself on you know a zoom call maybe is not the best way to go um and yet you were punished for it so like is there any repercussions for them will there be 
I mean, not really. No, my the repercussion that made me happy was that it would be public. And I knew that if yeah. I attempted a lawsuit, uh, I would have a non-disparagement or something along those lines and that that would be part of the agreement. And honestly, as a contract employee, I don't have that many rights. They they have every right not to put me on air. That was a very bad reason to not mm-hmm. put me on air. Um, but they can do that because I was not a full-time employee. If I had been a full-time employee, different scene. But one of my objections, both publicly and to uh, the HR person I spoke to, was during the era of Me Too when I was on air, I was asked to comment on every errant penis in the entire media, Hollywood, politics world over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. sports as well. And I rejected the idea that this was the one I was not allowed to talk about. I reject it. That's right. Yeah. I'm not Um, protecting this one and still talking about all of these. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel like, was it because you weren't politically aligned with CNN's agenda? Like if, if you had been a liberal commentator or, you know, just generally on the left, do you think the same thing would have happened? Right. Yeah. I think I hit like a, a double whammy here, which is a woman on the right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, t- there was a boys club involved. Tubin was part of it. Um, I was not, I also wasn't part of the ideological club. So mm-hmm. it's just two, it was two strikes against me and everyone's like, well, we, how much do we care about hearing her? Right errant opinions, her, her mm-hmm. problematic right-wing opinions. <laughs> they're not that interested, unfortunately, right, right. um, in half the country. And, uh, and again, I, I just think it makes it easier to punish someone like me mm-hmm. because the, the CNN faithful are not going to be super mad that I'm not there. <laughs> right. That's for but, sure. But surely all the feminists sprang to your defense, right? <laughs> oh, you know what? I didn't hear from anyone. <laughs> That's, uh, that was not my experience, nor did I expect it to be. I mean, that's one of the things too. And this is just sort of not everything, um, the left often tries to make everything a sexist issue, a what, you know, whatever the ism is of the day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just that like life is tough and people are self-interested in general. And so if you're asking people to stand up for you, that requires some courage that requires putting necks out. Um, and in the TV and media business and politics, shall we say that is uh, less likely to occur even than right. other areas. <laughs> <laughs> right. So post CNN, um, I love your podcast. I think you're hilarious. Um, do you feel like you've made it in your career? Uh, yes, because making it for me looks different than it does for other people. And this is something, again, I think our friends on the left do not allow for is that uh, I chose this career path. And despite speed bumps that we were just talking mm-hmm. about, I chose it because I have a flexible schedule. I can hang out with my kids. I can be there after school for my kids uh, if I want to um, and spend a lot of time with family in flexible ways. That's what I wanted to do. I often gave up pay to make mm-hmm. that happen. I never wanted to host my own TV show. Uh, this was not, I'm not, I'm not driven by the news cycle enough in the way that one must be to anchor an entire show that way. Uh, And I think that that makes me happier and makes me better at reading what the national mood actually is, because most people are not driven by the news cycle in the same way that we have to be. 
Right. Uh, and so I just don't get a charge out of that enough to have been like the head of a primetime show. Right. Right. Um, and so I was, I'm at peace with that. <laughs> I get to talk about things that I like to talk about. I get to have a little bit of an impact. Um, I get to model being the weirdo in the room for uh, my kids mm-hmm. and critical thinking and all those things that I attempt to model uh, and sometimes courage sticking up for yourself. And that's what I want to do. That's the more important part of a career for me than hitting whatever the C-suite goal is. Right. So you have four kids. Um, You had a tragedy happen in your life where you lost your first husband um, in an accident. And it's recently you you passed, um, I forgot how many years it was, but you wrote a really beautiful piece about the normalcy that existed before. Um, You've also written a lot about resilience, which I just love and think that um, it's so important to teach resilience and model resilience. And you've always just been to me um, like somebody who's extremely strong, but um, real and honest and not pretend. So how do you show your kids resiliency? Like what, what's some Mary Catherine Ham tips on showing your kids how to be resilient? Yeah. Well, first off, I would say that I, I would just like to Note the fact that when we met and we're drinking cocktails in Manhattan, when we used to hang out, the idea that if you had told us that between us, we'd have seven kids yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm you're not like sure bringing that... up most of them. I mean, you have, you know, you have the majority here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not both... sure we would have bought that. We both um, didn't want to get married. Um, you know, whoops. <laughs> it was a different it was, time. It was a different um, time. But yeah, I think, uh, look, I think my kids aren't going to, for a long time, understand what was happening to me Mm -hmm. during that time. And I don't want them to, right? Uh, I I wanted them, I wanted to sort of get through that, giving them as little of my trauma as possible. Mm -hmm. And that is something I think people have really lost sight of, which is that you are supposed to stand in the breach for your kids. Yeah, They are not your emotional crutch. Yes, I want to have an open relationship with them. And we we work on communicating and all of that. But there are things that they are not called to deal with. And in this particular case, especially, they were too young to have trauma from this loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was my toddler was two and barely verbal. And uh my young, my second was unborn. Uh, I was seven months pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I knew a, that was very helpful to me, by the way, being pregnant, (laughs) because I knew I had to sort of keep it between the navigational beacons to get this Mm -hmm. kid born safely. And that that was my first priority. And then parenting led me to do the same thing. This is my priority. It doesn't mean I neglect myself, but it does mean that I'm really careful about the ways that I lean on them. Um, right. and the ways that I try to get through life. So I, I, you know, I need to put that baggage elsewhere. Now, do I hope someday that they understand it a little bit? Um, sure. Uh, but to me, the, the more important thing is the day-to-day resilience and them having seen all of us as a family, mm-hmm. just get up every day and do what we need to do. One of the things I did in the very early days, because I, there were times as there are for anybody who's going through something big, where you can't put together an entire day. Maybe you can't even put together half a day. But the thing that I did was I made sure that I got up and gave my kids breakfast every morning. 
And to me, that was a very material, it was often a hot breakfast. I was like, look at me, I'm killing it, guys. I, I don't do um, that. <laughs> but Get it, your own cereal. Yes, exactly. your own milk. <laughs> it felt very um, concrete mm -hmm. that I was doing the right thing by them. If I could get that done and then they go to nap and then I, the rest of the day is a waste, the rest of the day is a waste. Right. Um, so yeah. I think seeing maybe learning some of those tools and watching me do some of that over the years, I hope translates. Um, the other thing I think during COVID, um, and other times that have been scary is just to be rational about my concerns and to communicate those concerns rationally, you know, uh, when, when COVID came around, we, we weren't quite sure what it looked like, but we did know that it was not as dangerous to young people. And it wasn't as dangerous to mom and dad who are healthy and in their 40s. And right. so I made sure that they knew that. And I told them, we're also going to be like a little bit more careful about the grandparents, but it doesn't mean we're going to never talk to them, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is apparently what some people did. Right. Um, and so I think, <laughs> yeah, keeping your head about you in those mm -hmm. times is really important for kids. And then hopefully when they're adults, they will also uh, stand in the breach for their kids. Cause it's really, I really feel like a lot of people lost sight of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last few years have just been people kind of covering up their already, you know, previously held opinions with these new neuroses. Um, like the, the, the grandparents, like how many people took the opportunity to never see their in-laws? Cause they were yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm really trying to protect you from the COVID. You know, like can't take any chances. Um, right. so I, I think that, and, and people who wanted to work from home or people who wanted to stay home all the time and didn't want to go out kind of used all of that as an excuse yeah. as well. Um, so to wrap up, um, I like to ask my guests to end with the best tip for listeners on how they can improve their lives. What do you think? Uh, hmm, okay. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give two, even though that's like a very pundity thing to do, but <laughs> they're both, they're both fairly practical and small. So the first one is whenever things are going off, like feel like they might be going off the rails for me. I'm like, and this, ha this included uh, after Jake died. Um, Sometimes life is literally just about putting one foot in front of the other. And if you can physically do that by taking a walk, it will get you in a better place. Being outside is good for you. Walking is good for you. Doing it Touching with your kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is all <laughs> important stuff. Um, yeah, you just literally touch grass. Um, and I did that in the days after Jake died. I made sure I got outside every day um, and of course I was pregnant at the time, but drink more water than wine is also <laughs> a good rule of thumb. But right. the second one is, and I tweeted about this recently, and I think it's a fairly simple fix for a lot of people who might be in a bad place when it comes to parenting. Mm -hmm. There's so much drama around parenting and it's a hard job, but it's also a beautiful job and a fun job. And right. if you can surround yourself with parents who really enjoy their children and don't dwell on the drama and the hard parts as much as they do the parts that they enjoy. Uh, for instance, getting off maybe the Facebook mom group, which can be oh, yeah. almost inevitably toxic mm -hmm. and putting yourself with a group chat of maybe some moms who look, we all have struggles, but we're also focusing on how much we actually enjoy our families that who you surround yourself with is going to make a huge difference. And I try very hard to make sure that I'm surrounded by people who, although they have struggles, are right. not focusing on that 100% of the time. 
I love that. I really do think that your mood is so often, you know, decided by who you're surrounded by. And if you're around miserable people who hate their kids or hate their lives, it, it's going to rub off on you. So I think that's really yeah. excellent advice. Well, thank you so much, Mary Catherine. You are amazing. Uh, subscribe to her Substack and listen to her amazing podcast, Getting Hammered. I listen all the time. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. You make it easy, Carol. Everybody listen all the time. This is great. Thanks so much for joining us on the Carol Markowitz show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.